I don't like the word wholesale. If you talk to a lot of older people in the business, oh, okay, so it's just a nicer word to say selling real estate without a license. Okay, great. There's nothing wrong with this, right? Ethically speaking, nothing wrong with this. It's a needed niche. I've done probably a dozen or two dozen assignments. It's just, you need to be careful is the point I want to make. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Hey guys, Dan Abercross, Front Range Land, Mason McDonald, RM Golden, back today to talk a little bit about some of the different exit strategies with land. Uh, one thing that I know both of us enjoy about this business is there are a variety of ways to exit. Uh, you don't just have to buy and sell. So we're going to talk through those today, but Mason, how you doing? Dan, I'm doing wonderful. This is going to be one of my favorite topics to talk about within the realm of uh, not just land, but investing in general and business in general, because there is not a good investment if there's a solo exit strategy with it. And land allows you tons and tons of opportunities to get rid of it um, and still make money. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Um, so let's just dive right into it and start with the simplest. So do you want to talk through different ways to buy and sell? Let's do it. Yeah. So, and what we're talking about here from an exit strategy perspective is whenever we actually have a piece of land under contract, meaning we have a purchase and sale agreement that has been signed by both the seller and you as the investor and what we can do with that uh, that signed contract. So with buying and selling, this is what my bread and butter is. This is what Dan, I think you do a lot of it, but within buying and selling, there's multiple exit strategies. So what we do whenever we get a piece of land under contract and we know that we are going to purchase it, we ensure every purchase that we do with the land, we will submit it through a title company and title states are an attorney with attorney states. And we actually close and assume title of that property. Now, what we can do there from a sales perspective is we have a few options. We can either one, sell it with a realtor. That's something that I do that I'm going to dive into and kind of talk a lot about the strategies of selling it with a realtor. Two, you can sell it yourself. Um, there's a lot of ways to do this. I've sold a few myself, but for the most part, I don't like sales and I like to outsource and delegate things that I don't like doing or I'm not good at. And then three, what you can do is you can sell it, uh, but in a non-conventional method, like on terms, which is what we call you know seller financing or owner financing a deal. So to talk about the first one, buying and selling with a realtor. So what you're going to have to do is you need to find a realtor that has experience with working with land or even ideally land investors, but have in the past 30, 60, 90 days, whatever the market is, has at least sold a few pieces of land because you need to know that they're actually doing business. And these are the realtor partners that are absolutely invaluable to the business because during your due diligence period, you're the one, you can call them and just ensure that you're purchasing in for an appropriate amount uh, you don't need to feel uncomfortable working with these type of people because they, they're they investor savvy, which means that they know that you're making money on this deal and that is not going to bother them or hurt their feelings or make them want to go reach out to that seller or anything like that. So you, if you know that they're doing transactions and they're speaking to you in a way that kind of shows and indicates that they're investor friendly, you can tell that they're going to be a great realtor partner to work with. Now, 
you own this property, you've talked to with this realtor, you determine that they're a good fit. You're going to sign a listing agreement with these people. And you need to be careful with the language that's going to be associated with the listing agreement because that's going to include their compensation. And Dan, you and I are of the mindset of we pay our people well. Um, so for me, depending on the type of land that I'm doing, this is what a standard listing agreement will look like where it's going to be 12 months because land sometimes has a longer sales cycle. And I offer 10% commission. So 5% to my buyer's agent and 5% to the seller's agent or 5% to my seller agent, 5% to the buyer's agent uh, with a thousand dollar minimum. That way it, if it's a lower dollar property, they're still going to make their money. They're going to be incentivized because it's a higher than usual commission uh, where, you know, you would have to get something, whatever that price is, uh, nearly twice as much to get that same amount of commission, uh, if that math makes sense, where they're getting 5% instead of a typical 3% on it. So the realtor should coordinate everything. Uh, they should get good, high-quality listing photos, uh, drone footage, uh, showing kind of the boundaries of the property and really doing a good job listing it and posting it, uh, not just on the MLS, but a lot of the third-party sites and making sure it goes to Redfin and Zillow and potentially land.com and Facebook and all sorts of stuff. And that's going to be an easy dynamic to work with because they're going to be presenting all the offers to you. They're going to be doing all the marketing and everything. You're just going to have to accept the offers as they come in. But as an alternative to that, you can sell it yourself. And uh, Dan, I think talking about selling it yourself, what are some of the main strategies that you use whenever you're selling a property yourself? Sure. So we sold a lot of land via Craigslist, Facebook, and neighbor letters. Land.com is good if you have nice recreational acreage or farm and ranch, but for my niche, it's not really useful. And uh, so more for the types of lots that are going to be sold to builders, I have had success other than with the neighbor letters. Then you just get someone who doesn't want a builder next door. And it's quite simple. You just put up a basic posting on Facebook or Craigslist, outline the details, where it's at, what you can build. And then in Facebook too, join as many land groups as you can, share it to all of those for the locality uh, and just overarching general ones. And uh, that'll get you buyers all day long. There's lots of builders on Facebook. So, you know, I sold, you know, some land, you know, myself and everything, but I bought a lot of land off market. What do you have to know selling a piece of land off market? Yeah. So... <laughs> You need to know, well, you need to have a good contract. Uh, that's important and how, how to fill that out. But assuming you've already bought it, you probably know that. You got to have your title agent. You got to be good at talking to people and be able to answer the questions that pertain to, uh, if you heard our earlier podcast on some of the basics of land that aren't taught, you're getting a lot of questions about surveys and plat maps and setbacks, zoning, minimum square footage requirements, perk tests. Uh, and if you don't know these things, you're not going to be able to answer the questions and get these lots sold. So ahead of time, again, having listened, if you've listened to some of our prior episodes, you you would have, but you need to know what your end buyer is going to ask you if you're trying to sell it yourself. And so there's a lot of work involved there, especially when you get into HOAs, which have further overlays or requirements on top of the zoning code. So of course, I can't get specific without talking to about specific markets and areas, uh, but there is a lot you're going to get questions on that you're going to have to know. And a piece of advice, if you're selling a piece of land off market, create a document for each individual property that has all of the or answers to all of the questions you know that are going to be asked. Because 
part of the reason that I don't sell too much on Facebook Marketplace. Dan, how many inquiries do you get on a property directly to your Facebook whenever you post it and it's a good property? And how many uh, actually are very interested in purchasing it versus just reaching out? Yeah, I mean, it could be a dozen a day and, and you know, one out of 40 of those is real. There, there you go. So if you have a quick document that you can copy and paste right into those chats to answer every single question you could ever think of asking, that right there, that response, uh, the sophisticated or the, the actual real end buyers, they're going to be like, oh, perfect, this answers all my question. I'm actually interested in pursuing it. Or the people yep. that said, uh, is this still available? Um, my least favorite word in the world on Facebook Marketplace, um, you know, then then they can either look at it or keep kicking tires because they're never going to buy land anyway. So I, I think that's perfect. And it's a great additional marketing strategy that you can also utilize regardless of if you have a realtor using it. You know, we're always trying to want to move and sell our land, you know, as quickly as possible. And if you can get more views, that's perfect. So um, that that's a second way to sell it. Uh, the third way to sell it, to talk about it a little bit more is something something I like doing. It's not my favorite strategy in the world, but it's still great. It's a different way of getting, you know, residual or passive income, and that's selling it uh, owner financing, which means that we're serving as the bank. What are the actual technicalities of selling an owner finance deal? You know, what what are you using? Are you using a contract for deed? Uh, or a note and deed of trust, and what are some of those differences, Dan? And then we can kind of go into some of the rates that we get whenever we do an owner finance deal and what that actually looks like. Sure. So quite simply, note and deed of trust, which there's variations to that depending on the state, but in concept, that is the same as when you buy a house with a mortgage. You buy a house, it transfers title into your name, and then the bank has a note and deed of trust against the property until you pay it off. So that's one way to go about it. And I only do that if there is a substantial down payment or it's a really, and it's a really reputable buyer. And I don't sell a lot on terms, especially not anymore, but that's one option because the significance of, of, every, of what I just said is that the ownership transfers into their name. So if they stop paying, you have to foreclose. Now, option number two is a land contract, contract for deeds. You'll hear this referred to different ways, but- the idea there is that, okay, if I sell a parcel to Mason that way, he puts $1,000 down, the parcel stays in my name, and then the contract states that once he has paid it off, then I transfer ownership to him. And so if he stops paying, taking it back, canceling the contract is much easier. Now, this means it's still in your name, so you got to keep paying the taxes or HOA fees or anything and everything that is assessed to the lot. Uh, but this is a bit of a safer way to do it, but be careful because it's gotten a bad reputation, of a, a bad connotation in a lot of circles because there are many people that have abused this selling land or other assets to people who are never going to be able to buy it, just taking the down payment, taking the land back and moving on. So just make sure you're not one of those people and you're not just taking back the parcel after a few payments over and over again. But uh, with that, another nuance to be aware of is then you are going to have to create and record the deed. Now, I have a bunch of title agents that have done dozens of transactions for us, so I just ask them to do it, and they do. But if you don't have those relationships, that probably won't work. And then one more thing, uh, with the note and deed of trust route, when they pay it off, well, you got to release your lien on the property. And so again, 
That's where I just call one of my title agents, have them prepare the documents, and then record it with the uh, county. But uh, the major difference between those two methods, to summarize, is that with note and deed of trust, it transfers into their name. With contract for deed, it stays in your name until they finish paying it off. Yeah, that that was a great breakdown. Um, you know, I personally in my business do the note and deed of trust route, and I've almost had to foreclose on individuals. But what's nice about it is, just from an ethics perspective, is if you potentially know or have a relationship with the the buyer, um, you can go out and work it out and figure it out. And you know, to do a quick story on that, so I, I bought this piece of land uh, in Southern Colorado. I paid I don't know maybe eight or nine thousand, and I'm telling this story because I don't recommend doing what I did. Um, so I paid eight or 9,000. I ended up selling it for about 23,500 and we did note and deed to trust. I had a real real estate agent on it. So I had to pay out the commission on it. And what ended up happening is his down payment was so low. I had to bring money to the closing table to actually sell the property. Now, with that being said, it ended up being, I think $24 that I had to bring to the closing table. But you know, whenever you sell a property, you want to get that uh, infusion of cash or at least close to what you paid back. But once again, it all determined, it's all based on your individual risk tolerance and what your expected returns and the type of business that you're expecting. So with this gentleman, um, we have him on a three-year note uh, that is, I think, at eight or 9% interest. Um, so by the end of it, I'll have made, you know, a pretty substantial uh, sum of money just from the interest and the actual sale price and everything. But uh, I'd been getting the payments. Uh, he wanted to pay a pretty high dollar amount, like $1,000 a month. And I said, no, let's reduce it. Let's do three years. Let's do this interest rate and everything like that. That way you can kind of save up money. It's the same concept of don't put your house on a 15-year mortgage. Put it on a 30-year mortgage and pay it off in 15. So I did this with this gentleman and uh, he stopped paying me. And I have a note servicing company, you know, and I'm reaching out to them and they're like, well, we can't do anything. That's for you to do. Uh, you're the bank in this situation. We're just the company that processes it. So had to reach out to him. And for about two months, I'd never received any contact back. And then I finally said, hey, man, you know, we're coming up on the point where I'm going to have to foreclose on you. And he said, I'm so sorry. My sister and two uh, uh, nephew and niece passed away in a car accident a few months ago. And I've been scrambling and I, it's horrible. And I and I have had a lot of empathy for the guy's situation. And I said, well, what what would you like to do? Would you want to keep making payments? And so I reduced his payments by, you know, 80% for six months. And we're coming up on the end of that six months. He's paid on time every single time. Um, and then it'll go back to those payments and extend the loan. So it's a fun way to be able to um, really help people get uh, to purchase land where you need to somehow uh, verify their ability to pay. And Dan, I don't know if you do this. I don't do credit checks on my people uh, that I do an owner finance deal. I just do proof of income um, because it's cool to be able to sell people the American dream. Sure. Yeah, no, similar process. I've done it where, again, I don't, especially now, I don't sell in terms often that they're putting down at least what I have into it. So I'm not that worried about it. Uh, so I have not checked much uh, in the past, but it's usually a reputable builder we're selling to. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was a good a good summary there. Uh, yeah, and and not Joe Schmo in, in the backwoods, but you know, it's once again my last point I'll make on owner financing, um, and it's just a way to kind of you know that I want to explain categorical thinking, and you know, if you know it costs your it costs about five thousand dollars a month to run your business, 
Uh, it costs me a little over 10000 a month. Where if you can sell enough properties that you get a decent return on your capital, but you're getting monthly payments that are close to what your operating expenses are, then you start playing with house money in your business. So uh, just it, it's once again, like Dan said, you know, neither of us do too many owner finance deals uh, because getting that cash back quickly works works really well in the business. But um, if you can use that to offset your expenses, the numbers we're talking about on these deals, you know, think about it. Think about it from a car payment perspective of if you bought a 30 or 40 or $50,000 car and you put 20% down, your car payment's going to be, you know, at 8% interest, you know, $500 a month. You know how hard it is to get $500 a month um, in cash flow from a single family rental. <laughs> so it is a cool and different strategy that you can use, but that that's, I'll hop off my soapbox so we can go into the next strategy that, uh, that you can use to exit land, which is what, Dan? But let's talk wholesale and double close together. And I I put these, speaking of categorical thinking, in the same box because the idea is that you don't have money. And I don't like the word wholesale. If you talk to a lot of older people for in the business, oh, oh, so it's just a low price bef- b- b- below retail? Well, it's come to mean something different in recent years. And I'll never forget when I first heard this on a podcast and I heard it explained, I go, Oh, okay. So it's just a nicer word to say selling real estate without a license. Okay, great. Uh, So wholesaling as it's used today is a word in place of assignment, assignment. And so it's when you have a contract on a property and you sell the contract as opposed to actually selling the land because you can't represent the seller and, and earn a commission on it if you're not licensed, but you can sell your interest in the contract. Now, this, there's nothing wrong with this, right? They're, they're ethically speaking, nothing wrong with this. It's a needed niche. I've done probably a dozen or two dozen assignments. It's just, you need to be careful is the point I want to make. You know, a friend of mine built a business in Colorado based on assigning contracts, right? A wholesale business. And he talked to his lawyer a few years in and he had done many, many transactions and she just laughs and goes, if you ever get sued, you're going to be found guilty of operating or selling real estate without a license. You need to be closing on a good portion of these. You clearly have never had the intent to close. And so this varies from state to state. But my main point there is you need to be aware of the laws and make sure you're not breaking them. And if you are going to assign contracts, all your verbiage, all your marketing needs to be really clear that the contract, the interest in the property is for sale, not the property itself. So an assignment, quite simply to summarize, is me I have a property under contract at, let's say, 50 grand. Mason wants it. He says, I'll pay 55. I sign uh, an assignment contract with Mason that says, I'm selling my interest in this property. And I have it 50 grand to Mason for five grand. And his name replaces my name as the buyer on the contract, quite simply. So I'll pause for a moment. Oh, yeah. No, I think I, I think you hit it. You, you, nailed, you nailed the point where it's you're not selling the property, you're selling the piece of paper that um, you have under contract. So I think once again, it's it, it's about your tolerance for risk and your understanding of what your local regulations are around it, which consult with an attorney to figure this out. But I think a couple of, so pros, pros of wholesaling is obviously you don't need a lot of money besides your marketing budget to be able to make, you know, a pretty great return on, on that. And, and it's like, you know, wholesalers exist for a reason because they're out finding deals and that provides value to investors. 
you know, you as the investor, if you decide to wholesale a property, I think the biggest takeaway that we can say is don't try and do it to a retail buyer. You should not be trying to wholesale your property to, you know, random people that you don't know. It should be a builder that you have an established relationship with. And you don't have to have actually done a transaction with them, but you had to have known that okay, I know that this institutional builder is looking for this type of lot because I talked to, you know, Sally in their acquisitions department. And I know that if I get something under contract, we'll assign the contract and come up with the fee there. Or maybe potentially the only, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on it, Dan, would you assign a contract to a neighbor of, say you get that property under contract for 20,000, you know, it's worth 40,000. You don't really want to deal with listing it. You don't have the cash for it. Who cares? Whatever. If you w- go and knock on that neighbor's door and say, hey, you know, I'll sell you my stake in this property for $25,000, would you would you approach that or what are your thoughts? Yeah. So there's a little nuance to that. If, you know, let's say my guy calls, one of my acquisition guys calls the neighbor and they've got a good rapport and the neighbor wants it. Potentially. And this is how I like to approach it. Even when my guys are doing disposition, let's say we do intend to assign I never have them bring it up as the first option because you want to be careful here. If your buyer knows you can't close, oh, they've got you. They've got you. They know you are stuck. And so the way we would always do it when we've done this is just role playing kind of for a minute. Oh, hey, Mason, you know, we have X property on 123 Main Street and we were planning to just close it, list it with our realtor at, you know, 50. But gosh, we were thinking if if you're interested, we can just assign it to you. We we'd probably be able to sell it at 45 and see what I did there. Yeah. It's a secondary option. We can close. So don't you dare try and beat us up over price, but well, yeah, if we could just assign it to you. So I would approach the neighbor the same way in that it's just kind of an afterthought, just a casual thing. And it's not uh, this scary idea, right? Like it is in some people's mind. And then if they want it, they might go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's, that's acceptable. But I, I don't know. What, what is that? I've never, done that before that sounds good oh it's easy i mean i just it's a way for you to put your name as the purchaser on the contract in in place of mine uh for a fee oh okay and so i would do it if we had a solid rapport they seemed reasonable they did what they said they were going to do but before i forget mason let me add one more thing here that's really Mm -hmm. important um when you guys do this make sure the huds or settlement statements or altos depending on where you are and what they call them are separate. We did two assignments in Florida last year. They were some of our first transactions. And we're coming from Colorado, where Colorado HUDs are separated. And so the buyer only sees their side and the seller only sees their side. In Florida, they usually combine them. And we did not know that until closing day. And the assignment fee was bigger than the purchase price on both lots. Now, yep, yep. There was definitely a little bit of a panic attack when I saw that. Uh, This was early last year. And anyways... It ended up being fine. This guy didn't care. He just wanted to get rid of him. So it didn't matter. But mm-hmm. be aware of that. And if you need the HUDs to be separated, make sure you ask. So sorry for throwing that in and, and taking this off topic. But no, I, I, I think it, it it all ties back into a lot of the specific contractual language that you have. And just you know, uh, assuming a certain amount of risk. Because what that can do if your contract is weak is that can be a deal killer so often and you just don't want to do the deal killer but i think this kind of leads us into our our next exit strategy with land which similar to wholesaling but a little bit different and that's the double close 
So what 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 is a double close in its definition? Because I guess technically buying and selling is double closing uh, just with mm-hmm. more time in between, right? So I've seen this done two ways. In both cases, they refer to it as a double close. There are simultaneous closes where let's say I'm under contract to buy Mesa's lot at 10 grand. It's worth 15. I go and find the end buyer. I get a contract with them to sell it to them at 15. And the title company executes the two transactions at the same time where the funds from that end buyer at 15 pay off Mason for the front part of the contract. I get my 5k fee and the end user ends up with the lot. So that's, that's one way that I've seen a double close done. However, Do you want to throw something in there? No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. So I am doing transactional funding for someone who has a double close where the title company will not do it like that. They'll do a double close, but it's they're requiring the funds from that person in the middle for the first transaction just for a few hours, and then they'll close the second. And so conceptually, it all takes place on the same day. So it's similar, but the main difference is that with this sort of double close, You still have to bring the funds, even though it's only for a few hours. So I'm providing that for him and he's going to take the fee in the middle. I'll get my funds right back. And then the end user will ultimately buy. So conceptually, same thing. You just, you do need the money for a few hours. I love it. I love it. And and that right there is in my mind, what the more risk, you know, or the less risk averse version of wholesaling is where you can pretty much get that done in any state, to my understanding, because you're actually buying and assuming title of the property and then selling it back right again, um, depending on how you structure it, which is kind of what you you mentioned there, which is, once again, it's another great strategy. You can find very cheap transactional funding. And if you can do it in a way that makes total sense, um, and once again, it has to be legal, but then your assignment fee, it's essentially just flipping on the same day where you are not holding very long. Potentially, you can get transactional funding at 1% to 3%, um, which is fantastic. Uh, But once again, just make sure all of your contractual language matches up and you're utilizing a title company or an attorney to uh, be able to do it in a safe and effective way that uh, helps you avoid litigation. Jumping right into a different exit strategy. So I think we've hit most of the, you know, we started with buying and selling and then we talked about what to do whenever you just have the contract. But once you actually own the property, you have a lot of opportunities to you know, improve value or if you want to hold it. And I think something I want to talk about next is the idea of leasing your land out to someone else where, Dan, I don't know if you've done this before, but say if you own a piece of agricultural land, there are so many people that need opportunities to you know, have their, their cattle graze or any of their livestock graze for a while, or say it's a a type of land that there's no to minimal restrictions and they can go park their RV on it for six months at a time. You can actually lease your land to these people and it's like getting rent payments. And I think this is a really great strategy to use if you have a longer term value add a proposition that's available for your land of say you own a thousand acres and you can camp on it for six months at a time, but it's going to take you a long time to get something done. Hell, lease it to a few people that want to park their RVs on it and do something like that, assuming that the the uh, the county or, or city allows it to happen. But it's just kind of one of what I view as an interim strategy that you could potentially use to get your cost basis back in the land 
without really making any improvements, or if you do want to make improvements, they're not very substantial, like maybe putting fencing in or that kind of thing. But I would not recommend doing that for anything that the end buyer intends on developing. Because once again, with a land lease, you need to make sure all your documents are, are outlined and you know, you can, uh, you can kick them off your land if they're not paying and everything like that. So you just have to be careful with how you structure and everything. But Dan, I want to get into what I think is more fun and the more complex strategy with exiting land. And this is going to be adding value to the piece of land. So what we could start with is something that's your bread and butter, putting a house on it. Yep. So if you got, you purchased this piece of land at a discount, you paid 15 grand, it's worth 30 grand. And you say, you know what? I'm going to build a house on it. Uh, why is that a great exit strategy? Yeah, Mason, if, if set up properly, it's a really simple system where you aren't doing much beyond the buying of the land and the financing of the project. And so for a more detailed talk on this, see our video on new construction, uh, our podcast, excuse me. But uh, conceptually, if you're in a market where there's a lot of demand for new homes and you have a shovel-ready lot where all utilities are in place, roads, it's flat, it's easy. You know, I, I do all my builds on quarter-acre lots where the water and sewer lines are at the street, where the electric runs along the back. They're perfectly flat. There's houses on both sides. You know, th this can be a great strategy where you can make, you know, approaching six figures on, on entry-level housing. So I only would do this on the absolute prime lots as far as location and then also quality of the lot. And having an excellent and reliable GC is really the key here. And then building a product that is applicable to that market. So the market I'm in, a simple 322, 1500 square foot on a six foot crawl space is bread and butter perfect. Whereas, you know, there are more expensive areas where maybe it makes sense to build a big house. But without going on, on too much of a rant here, it comes back to buying the right land that makes it easy where you do not have to pay for any utility extensions or, you know, grading or anything like that, where the land is flat, easy, and it's somewhere where there's demand for whatever sort of housing you're going to put on it. I think that's such a great point and such a great opportunity to add value to the land that um, you, I mean, you can make a lot of money doing that way. But once again, you have to think about the end use and whatever that product is and making sure it aligns where you know, Dan, we've got, you know, deals that we've done together or deals that I do that are in luxury markets. And the thing is me building a luxury home on that house or on that piece of land might not be the best decision from a value add component, because what do people want that want a luxury product is they want control of the decision making. So I'm not going to go build a custom home for someone else. That just doesn't make sense. That's not within my scope of work. But if you're in just a normal subdivision that's kind of a starter subdivision, you can put a spec house on it that is going to match up with what the product is in, in the neighborhood kind of across the board. That's such a great opportunity. And once again, if you know, we you know, see see the episode where we're talking about, you know, details and new construction to get right into it. But one beautiful thing, you know, and two two point or three points I want to make on this is if you're gonna add value to the land, make sure it's different and greater than the value that it would take if you just flipped it. So if you're going to make $15,000, if you purchase that land at a discount, and if you're going to make $15,000, and if putting a house on it is going to take you six to nine months, and you're going to make $14,000 or $20,000, make sure that that's something that you're comfortable with and happy with and happy with the tax implications associated with it. 
um, because otherwise it might not be worth your time to do. Second to that is that once again, another beautiful thing about exit strategies is you own this property for cheaper than it's worth because you're getting closer to whole wholesale, actual wholesale pricing for some of the building materials and general contractor fees and stuff like that if you've got a good relationship with them. So you've got built-in equity from the land being lower and getting the building costs done, not for an end buyer, but for uh, an actual investor. And then look at it and see if it makes sense to add it to your portfolio. If you can do a cash out refinance, get most of your money back and then you know, hold it as a rental, then that makes a lot of sense because you're going to start getting the tax advantages um, of it. And that's a great way to add properties to your portfolio. Yeah. Two quick points on that. Again, see our other video for more details, but I would only do this in municipalities where it's very, very, very easy to get a permit. And then number two, you know, I have a property, a spec house coming to fruition this month. It's under contract to sell and make 40-ish grand on it. If I just flipped that lot, I would have made like four grand. So that's worth doing. There you go. Exactly. You 10x your return, even though it took longer. And to to the people that are looking to get started and you know, need that cash back, don't do that. Don't do it. Even if it's a 10X return, if it's going to take that long and if you've never built it, make sure you have your finances in check and everything because, you know, for people that are just getting started, uh, making, you know, 40 grand flipping land after one after another might be quicker than doing it. And so this is an additional strategy to have within your portfolio once you actually have a way to actively make money because this is a great way to actively make money but once again, it's going to take a while. If it takes six to nine months to go through the entire process to get the certificate of occupancy and actually sell it, and what if you know it takes a little bit longer? So make sure, just like Dan does, that the value add is worth the time and that your yep. annualized return is going to match up with it because it's such an amazing strategy that gives you multiple multiple exits once again. But what if what if say you know you own an actual piece of raw land where utilities have not been extended to it. What are some opportunities to add value to a piece of land like that? Sure. Let's uh, let's pretend the land is up against the path of progress, right? It's just east of Colorado Springs or, you know, on one of the major highways between Austin and Dallas. Well, that could be an opportunity to, you know, yourself go through the whole process of subdividing and, and, and entitling the land so that you can put houses on it, or depending on what the builders in the area are looking for, you might be able to do a portion of that and then exit to them at quite a margin. And so I've watched friends of mine do this where they go to the area that's right outside the path of progress, they go get a huge piece of acreage under contract, and then they call up whoever the big builders are, you know, Lennar or Richmond or Toll Brothers, and they get clarity on what land they're looking for. Do they need it completely finished to the point of, you know, ready to go lots, or sometimes they might just need the paper plat recorded and then they'll take it from there. And so it's a great way to work backwards, establish the end buyer ahead of time, the price ahead of time, and then go do the work in between needed. So to put it a little more succinctly, you can take those rural raw acreages and do the subdividing do the uh, bring in the streets, roads, utilities, entitlements, and then sell at a huge margin if done properly. That's so smart. And I, I think one, one point of this, that's not the entire strategy uh, that we're talking about within the video um, that we could probably make a, a whole separate episode on is, 
you know, figure out what an end buyer actually wants that has a lot of capital, because then you can kind of match up and align your marketing strategy. There's so many builders and so many, uh, I mean, businesses out there that are constantly looking for land. And if sometimes it's on their website, I mean, you can call and ask and see what they're looking for and you can develop marketing strategy that would work around that. But, but enough on that and more on figuring out once again, it's ensuring that the value that you're adding is actually valuable to whoever your potential end buyer is, where there's not a lot of people that want, you know, 2,500 acres of highway frontage road. Um, there's not retail buyers that really want that. And there's only so many people that are actually going to use that. So if you, but with that being said, if you have, Hey, I've got the paper because that's what we're, once again, we're selling, or you can talk about at this at any level of doing a subdivide. If you get the plat map recorded and you haven't even done the horizontal improvements yet, you can sell the paper lots at an insane premium compared to what it was whenever it was just one giant 2,500 acre parcel. So then right there where it's like, okay, I can go to a end buyer of say, I purchased this land for a million dollars and I put you know, 50 grand into the due diligence to, or, you know, a necessary zoning and, and re-entitlements and plat maps and surveys and everything like that. And now there's going to be 2,500, you know, parcels available in the neighborhood. That right there, I mean, that's how you can really start, you know, five and 10 Xing your returns because you can sell that for substantial amounts, but it has to, you know, it's the, we, we have a friend who calls it, uh, buy the ranch and sell it by the pasture where you don't have to do even the level of complexity that we're talking about, where say you get a thousand acre ranch, you know, somewhere in, you know, beautiful West Texas or Southern Colorado. And a lot of people can't afford a thousand acre ranch, but you know what they can is they can afford a 50 acre ranchette and you can go in there and just put some simple roads and you don't even have to add, you know, certain improvements. You can do any level of development um, and we're talking about horizontal development of, you know, roads or utilities and that sort of thing that is going to add a lot of value and open up your buyer pool to a lot more people that have a lot less money. And that right there is so smart because you can take it and you can sell three and then you can keep the rest and hold them and sell them, you know, by, by the end. But we don't have to go any further into subdividing. Um, you know, I think within that, we talked a little bit about horizontal development. But Dan, what other exit strategies uh, are there with land that we're not naming right now? Well, what, one combination I thought of that you didn't mention or that we mentioned uh, fractured but not together is you said leasing the land to farmers. And then we talked about the horizontal development. It, this can be a smart strategy where you go out east Again, using Colorado's example, we're just kind of expanding east. The mountains are in the way west, and then north and south is mostly developed. And let's say you have some cash, and you know where we're progressing. You know where we're going. The Space Force is still probably coming here. There's still population coming here. So you expect, you know, well within our scope or our time frame, our time horizon for investing, you know, land out in Fowler is going to be worthwhile. Well, you could go buy one of these ranches, lease it to farmers, to cover your basis, maybe make a little bit of money to hold it, and then wait for the time at which the development, the horizontal development or selling it to the developer makes sense. I've watched friends of mine do this. And if you're new and you don't have much money, this probably isn't as good of a strategy, but shoot, I mean, you know, I had just watched a buddy do this in Vegas and he had bought it. 
I want to say, oh, nine or 10. And he had done just that, what we just described, leased it out, I think, just for storage, and then sold it at, you know, like a 20x now, 13, 12, 13 years later. It doesn't necessarily have to be that long of a hold, but conceptually, he combined two strategies there to cover his taxes and make a little money and a little capital back as he waited. And now that the time's right, sold it for a huge, huge premium. That's so smart. And you know what What I call that? It's it's using land as a bank, where if you have made a lot of money or you know people that have made a lot of money, you don't have to use your own money in all these deals that we're talking about. Because these, when we're talking about some of these deals, these are multi-million dollar deals. But with that being said, you know if you know the path of progress is there and if you were able to I mean, this this is the crucial point. It's you had to have initially purchased it at a discount of what current prices are of what the market indicates, because there is a certain amount of risk associated with doing that. And you know, listen to our episode about some of the stuff that's not taught in land or that people don't know, or some pitfalls associated with it. And what we mentioned is the useless subdivision. So recognize that there is speculation with doing an investment, assuming that there is going to be path of progress this way because progress can stop at any point in time. So you need to ensure that it's not going to be an entirely uh, risk-free venture. But what Dan is saying is if you can lease it in the interim you know, and potentially make your money back over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years before you exit, I mean, that right there is how you get huge, huge returns. And Owning land in your portfolio is typically going to be a great investment strategy uh, just in general. So I think that's awesome. You know, one, one more thing that I kind of want to hit on is targeting land that already has multiple uses. And that's going to happen depending on the county and city and state that you're in. And, and the example I want to give is, you know, we, we talk about these end buyers and kind of making sure that we have you know, an avatar in mind, not just for the seller that we're marketing to, but also the end buyer that is going to use the land based on whatever the intended use is or the assumed intended uses. Where I've got a property uh, that we just put on the market, it's getting a lot of interest in in uh, just west of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where it's zoned commercial. And I think a lot of people will see zoned commercial and be like, okay, I have to put a business on it, like a gas station or or you know, strip center or something like that. But with this, it's you can put a commercial building, you can put a duplex, you can put a single family residential, and you could put three tiny homes on this property without doing any of the stuff that we talked about before uh, related to you know, subdividing or getting the land entitled for a certain use or you know, re-recording the plat maps to do all this stuff just as is you can do all of this on that property. And so if you can find land where the individual piece of land without having to do any value add has multiple exit strategies. It's once again, uh, another, another beautiful thing about this business. Yep. Yep. No, that's a great example. One more, speaking of uh, Colorado, one more example. Uh, this is not something either of us have done, but we're aware of it actually looking at a big project where this would be the move. Water rights, the Western United States, right? I, I, I grew up in Ohio where again, the Great Lakes right there, Lake Erie, it rained all the time. So the thought of water scarcity didn't occur to me until I moved here. And water is scarce out west. And there's a lot of land that is worthless because the city maybe won't supply water uh, to it or they're just completely out. And so there are opportunities to take land in somewhere that's desirable, but is worthless because it doesn't have water. So you can't build and get the water rights for development. And that can 
dramatically by an order of magnitude increase the value of that land. And so Mason and I are actually looking at a project where that would be the the primary uh, value in. I think that's so awesome. Dan, I think we walked through everything that we can think of right now off the top of our head for exit strategies for land, but that is why this is such a great investment opportunity and a great business to to start from the ground up and build and figure out where your rare and valuable skills match up the best. Uh, Mace McDonald with RM Golden and Dan Habercost. We'll pick it back up soon. See you guys. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.